Well, this morning we are uh, picking up where we left off last week, and I mentioned uh, we're working through these five instincts. We are on the fifth of those instincts. So we've got this week, and then there'll be sort of a a conclusion one next week, and then as I mentioned, we'll be uh, picking up in 2 Kings after that. So I'll make sure and give you the updates as we move forward. But today we're looking at the final of those five instincts, which is the instinct of apathy. I've mentioned along the way that I sort of found these five instincts in Shakespeare's uh, All the World is a Stage monologue, each of us mere players, our entrance and exits, and then he goes on to describe these stages of a man's life. The fifth stage that Shakespeare describes, I want to read directly what he writes to you so you get a picture of it and we'll break it down, but Shakespeare wrote, into the lean and slimpered uh, slippered pantaloons, not a word we use anymore, but uh, pa- comfortable pajama pants and slippers, if you want to put it that way. Barry can wear uh, pantaloons all he wants with spectacles on nose and pouch on side a world now too wide for his shrunk shrank and his big manly voice turning again towards childish trebles and pipes and whistles in his sound Uh, it's actually a little bit of a sad description to be honest what Shakespeare is describing is a man who now dresses for comfort, for the home, for his house. If you remember last week, we saw the man thinking about his reputation, was worried about how to dress as was expected of him. But with this transition, the man begins to choose comfort in his home. And then Shakespeare goes on to symbolically describe this loss of voice. His one strong voice that he used to engage the world now becomes raspier with age and begins to shrink on him. And then that phrase that I love the most, the world now too wide. I think most of us know exactly what Shakespeare is describing with that image and that phrase. As we grow, we come to realize often how difficult it is to control things in this world. Things when we were younger, we might have imagined in our ambition that we could change, that we could impact. As time goes by, we begin to realize that there are fewer and fewer things in our control, things we can keep and have the way we want than we would often like. Shakespeare uses that image of a world too wide, a world we once imagined in charge of, we now realize beyond our grasp, beyond our control. Um, We actually have a scientific phrase that I think is helpful for understanding this idea of the world too wide. Some of you will be familiar with the word entropy. Scientists will describe this entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And basically the law states that things do not increase in order, they decrease in order. So set something up and it will fall apart, it won't put itself together. This is the idea of entropy. The given time and chance, things become more chaotic, less organized. All of you know this because this happens in absolutely every aspect of our life. Clean the house today and tomorrow it's already dirty again. Put that car brand new off of the lot and already that salt has got it starting to rust. Build something and Mother Nature immediately begins to erode it and tear it down. That law of thermodynamics, all things increase towards entropy, all things become more chaotic, more disorganized, is true across all of our human experiences. It's used to describe the way the universe itself is constantly expanding, running itself out, all the way down to the biology of your own cells. They find themselves deteriorating, not coming together. It's true of the largest universal principles and the smallest microbiology of our existence. So much of human life is an effort to push back against this chaos. 
We're constantly trying to order things and protect things and keep things that Mother Nature and human experience seem to be constantly tearing apart, pulling apart, deteriorating. So we work jobs and we do chores and we try to keep up with our own physical health and take on diets and plan remodels, all of it in an attempt to push back this disordering of the world around us. We're constantly fixing things that break and rebuilding things that have fallen apart and protecting and maintaining things to ensure they don't. The reality is at some point you realize how exhausting it all is. Wouldn't it be nice if the things that you fixed stayed fixed, if the things that you achieved stay achieved, but unfortunately they tend to fall apart. Entropy takes its toll not just on creation, but on our energy, on our ability to engage the complexity of life and the world around us. Having offered a lifetime of work and having mounted our best attempts at controlling it, we come to understand, unfortunately, how little control we actually have. Things we build fall apart. Your life work is erased by a single decision of your replacement upon retirement. Problems you thought solved in youth somehow resurface later in life. Society grows more perplexing and frustrating with each passing day. Relationships start to feel like they require more from you than they once paid back. And gradually, the human tendency is to disengage it. We contend ourselves with what we can control, little hobbies, little enclaves of control, little lives, little comforts, anything we can to avoid that exhausting reality. All of this is what I think Shakespeare meant when he described the world too wide. Um, there's a book entitled Growing Old where the sociologists uh, Elaine Cummings and William Henry describe a theory of social disengagement they actually set out to articulate that as we near death, as we near age, we begin to recognize the complexity and actively disengage ourselves from the world around us. It's not uncommon for as we age, we have fewer and fewer friends and are involved socially in fewer and fewer things. We retreat back from the complexity of the world, begin to disengage from it. I think all of this is in that image of Shakespeare, the man at home disengaged, his voice shrinking, the world too wide. And with this, this new instinct begins to emerge, what I've called apathy. It's just harder to stay engaged. And so this instinct to just be left alone, let me have my peace. Apathy towards the things that maybe at one point you found yourself engaged with, now you find yourself disengaging from. There's a famous scene in the novel, The Count of Monte Cristo. Edmund Dantes offers this toast in this crowd of people. And his words in the toast are, Life is a storm, my young friend. You will bask in the sunlight one minute, be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when the storm comes. You must look into the storm and shout, Do your worst, for I will do mine. Then the fates will know you as I know you, Albert Mondego, the man. Shouting into the storm is a young man's game. At some point, as Shakespeare is describing it, you lose that shout. It gets harder and harder to stand your ground, to put up a fight. We retreat, we disengage, we find ourselves increasingly apathetic. If you look close, I actually think you see this apathy all over the Bible, maybe in ways you've probably not recognized it before. Adam passively takes the fruit from Eve, who passes it to him. 
Noah, isn't it remarkable for all of his engagement to build an ark across all of those years, having just been delivered from the flood, grows a vineyard, gets drunk, and passes out in his own tent. David lounges on the roof when it said the other kings went out to war. Barak, from the book of Judges, couldn't muster up the courage to lead Israel when he was asked to. I think you see it in places like Peter, withdrawing from his eating with the Gentiles, trying to avoid the complexity and confrontation of what others thought. But I think one of the best places to see this apathy at work is in the story of Abraham. We're going to look here in a minute at towards the end of Abraham's life. You can turn there because I want to show you a few things and read a short passage from it. But Genesis chapter 21 is where we'll be going. Abraham, if he's remembered for anything across the storyline of his life, it is faith. Faith. Abraham is the character early in the biblical story who exemplifies what it means to live a life of faith. Abraham, of course, is called from home sent on this long journey to a distant land, which God doesn't specifically tell him where it will be or how long it will take him to get there. But Abraham, by faith, packs up his possessions and sets out. He does this in an ancient world, a context where most people lived within the same square, few square miles their entire life. But Abraham traveled great distances, this journey of faith, following God to this new land. But if you read Abraham's story, along with that faith, Abraham is tested in complicated and complex ways. The travel itself came with all kinds of risks. You'll remember the times that powerful kings attempted to steal his wife, threaten his family, or the complexity of relationships. People like his nephew Lot, who in many ways was like a son, though that relationship began to deteriorate and the two men found themselves opposed to each other. Or, of course, the great struggle of Abraham's life was that promise of a son, that one day he would have an heir. As Abraham stood beneath the stars, God promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars above. But yet his and Sarah's battle with infertility made that promise for decade after decade after decade go unfulfilled. At times, in the midst of all of this complexity, Abraham's faith is pretty remarkable. At times, he also finds himself struggling to go on believing, to go on trusting, to use that image, to go on shouting into the storm. If you think of those complexities, each time you see Abraham struggling with this tension between the active engagement of faith and his own tendency towards apathy and disengagement. When the kings threatened his own safety, you'll remember he passed his wife off as his sister, A passive attempt to try to avoid the confrontation that in many ways only complicated it further. Or you'll remember that broken relationship with Lot. Abraham interceded for Sodom to try and spare Lot's life, but it's interesting the ambiguity. Abraham is not sure if Lot escaped or not, and the two never reconcile even after that great intervention of prayer on Abraham's behalf. Or, of course, the story of Abraham and Sarah and their desperate prayer for an heir. Eventually, tired of waiting, nearing a hundred, Sarah came up with the plan that they could produce an heir through their servant, Hagar. What does Abraham do? It's not a moment of faith or clarity, but a moment of passivity. He disengages and gives in to her plan, and of course, the whole thing backfires. Sarah and Hagar begin to find themselves in constant dispute. Tension rises up in the home as Hagar gives birth to a son. 
How does Abraham deal with it? He says to Sarah, you deal with it, disengaging from the complexity. So Sarah began to mistreat Hagar, and Hagar and Ishmael fled into the wilderness. Abraham seems increasingly apathetic to the complexity within his own home. When it comes to faith, Abraham being this great character of faith, many of us think of the challenges to faith being things like doubt and sin. Those are the great obstacles a person of faith must endure, doubts and the temptation of sin. But I want to suggest to you that apathy is at least equal, if not greater, a risk to faith than sin and doubt. I say that because, in my view, looking around at the church and culture, I think far more men have lost the vitality, the engagement of their faith, to their own hobbies and the security and comfort of their recliners than to grotesque sins or fits of great doubt. C.S. Lewis pointed this out. Uh, He writes this. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Make a man comfortable. Teach him to protect anything he can control, to disengage the complexity of the world in apathy, and I think his faith is at greater risk in that moment than even in moments of temptation or doubt. I think it's one of the greatest challenges, to be honest with you, facing men today. I've tried throughout this series to make sure we've talked. I think many of you have noticed these instincts are true for men and women. Certainly, apathy is also true. But there seems to be particularly something going on with men and apathy today. We see it in the way that so many men are disengaging from education, from fatherhood, from career, simply dropping out, from relationships. The statistics tell us that men are increasingly disengaged from church compared to women. It's not just a temptation of those who are entering retirement or those who are, as Shakespeare describes it, in these final ages of a man's life. For so many men, this temptation to just avoid the complexity to avoid what they can't control, is causing this apathy to be a significant experience for men today. Men are retreating, whether young or old, into basements and hobbies and video games and pornography and online forums and any little enclave of control they can live in without the complexity. One of my favorite ways to describe this risk is uh, one of my favorite books is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's not a Christian book, but it's his critique on uh, the way culture sometimes captivates us and causes us to disengage. And in the beginning of that book, he, he compares two different dystopian novels. The dystopian novels he looks at are George Orwell's 1984, in which the plot is an authoritarian government oppresses and controls society through power. And he compares it with the novel Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World, which instead of a government using power to control, the culture uses pleasure and appetite to disengage people. And Postman compares the two by writing this. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books, authoritarian governments. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. 
Huxley feared would we, we would become a trivial culture. In 1984, the authoritarian novel, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. I've always found that although both of those risks are obvious, that it is this fear of pleasure and control and simplicity that often goes unrecognized as a risk. We're all aware of temptation. We're all aware of doubt. We're all aware of risks opposed to us, persecution. But few of us take the time to recognize that our own desperate need for comfort and simplicity can impact our faith in similar ways. If you want to see how big this risk of disengagement is, in Abraham's life, I think you have to look at the moment of his greatest test. Abraham's story has, as I want to show it to you in Genesis chapter 1, a kind of false ending. Most of us who grew up in the church know the big moments of Abraham's life, so we sort of miss the way that it just reads as you're reading through the story itself. If you look at the beginning of chapter 22, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, but you'll notice, or excuse me, chapter 21, you'll notice chapter 1 begins with the birth of Isaac. That great promise that for so long had eluded Abraham and Sarah. By the end of chapter 21, Abraham has not only this heir, Isaac, but he also settles in a place called Beersheba. I want to read it to you beginning in verse 32. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 32. So they, this is Abraham and those nations around him, made a covenant at Beersheba. When Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his armies, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. In other words, what we're seeing happen is all of the enemies that he had been fighting with signed peace treaties, and everybody returns back to their homes. Verse 33, Abraham then planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. You can hear, just me reading that, how it has a kind of summary, kind of conclusion sound to it. Abraham has reached the greatest milestones of his life, finally in the land God had been leading him to, Beersheba. We're told Beersheba has a well, and he plants a tamarisk tree. He's put down roots within that place. He signs peace treaties with all of the nations and the kings around him that previously he had been in conflict with. Lot had moved on. As painful as the situation had been, whatever complexity it had created had settled down. The same is true of Hagar and Ishmael. For as painful and as difficult as the situation was, God had cared for them, and at least Abraham's tent was now quiet from that complexity. And of course, the great fulfillment, Isaac, the long-awaited son, had finally arrived. So much is a conclusion of Abraham's story. And what you would expect to happen in the way Genesis is recorded is we would move on to the next patriarch. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Doesn't it feel like this story is wrapping up and now that Isaac is here, it will turn and become his story? But of course, those opening verses of chapter 22 change all of that. We read in chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. The story that follows is that famous story in which God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. How striking it is that Abraham's story seems to be coming to a conclusion. 
And just as it does, God tests him. I want to set before you that I think this was, this moment of everything being right in Abraham's life, one of the most dangerous moments in Abraham's life. For so long, he had found himself in complexity and uncertainty, traveling, going, facing risks, facing danger, the complexity of a promise that was still unfulfilled. And over and over, Abraham found himself walking out and looking up at the stars and praying, looking out over Sodom and interceding, his faith engaging these complexities he was experiencing. But now that he had everything, peace and wealth and land and a son, a tent, a well, a tree to set beneath, the question is this, what did he need faith for anymore? Certainly he still believed in God, but the kind of active faith that caused him on sleepless nights to leave his tent and look up at the stars and pray and wonder what God was doing and how he would do it. What need was there for that kind of actively engaged faith? In many ways, what need was there for God? He may have believed, certainly did, but Abraham had everything he wanted, everything he could want and had hoped for. So, In this moment of what I believe to be his greatest danger, faith simply disengaging from his life, we read, God tested Abraham. Most of us don't like that language. We don't like this idea of God testing Abraham. And I mean, after all, had Abraham not proved enough already? He had literally traveled across horizons and fought back armies and interceded for a son and Hadn't he proved by now, Abraham, this great character of faith that he had it? What in the world was God trying to learn from this test? I don't think it's right to think of Abraham's test as a kind of true or false. Abraham, I'm asking you to sacrifice your son. Will you do it or not? God sitting back and waiting to see if he would pass the test. After all, God knew the quality of Abraham's faith. Abraham had been demonstrating it. So what is the point of this test? Why is Abraham tested now and here in this way? What Abraham is told is he's told to prepare Isaac as a sacrifice. It may not seem like it to us, but there's a certain amount of ambiguity in what God asks of Abraham. What does it mean to prepare Isaac as a sacrifice? Does it mean simply take him to the mountain? Does it mean lay him on the altar? Does it mean actually plunge the knife into him, sacrifice him into death. And that ambiguity actually shows up in the story itself. On one hand, Abraham moves with a kind of unbelievable resolve. He gets up and goes, a three days journey. He leads Isaac up to the mountain. There seems to be no second guessing in him. But at the same time, we also hear Abraham say things like turning to the servants, wait here, until Isaac and I return. Or when Isaac asks, we have the knife in the wood, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. I think the right way to understand the ambiguity that Abraham was forced into is in the way that the book of Hebrews explains that moment of faith. The author of Hebrews writes, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is Abraham, 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What's always struck me about that is this word, even. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Even is a statement that implies a range of possibilities. Abraham anticipated there were all sorts of ways God might act, when God might intervene. But Abraham was prepared that even if God would act in resurrection from the dead, he would trust. It's a remarkable image of faith, not passing a test by simply saying yes or no, I will or won't but engaging this full spectrum of possibilities, with each line being crossed, anticipating perhaps it would be the next where God would intervene. This test isn't just about Abraham proving himself to God. It's about Abraham re-engaging this life of faith, re-engaging the possibilities not just of what he's willing to do, but how and when God will intervene. That having been the test through so much of Abraham's life, waiting for the promise of a son. What this test does is it forces Abraham back into a life of faith. His life won't be robbed from him, sitting under this tree, his wealth and peace around him, no need for God or faith. This test forces him back into that life of faith that had so so long been characteristic of him. The reality is there are complicated things we face in life, not to test us will we get it right or wrong, but perhaps to awaken us also to faith and the possibilities of how God may intervene, even in resurrection, as the book of Hebrews puts it. At times, God tests us not just to force us to prove ourselves, but so that we might be awakened to faith again so that we might be put in a position once again of recognizing that faith is active, not just a belief, not just an idea, but a way of living, a way of engaging the complexities and difficulties of this world. God tests Abraham to keep him alive to faith. And I think often, as much as we might like to avoid it, as much as I'm sure Abraham would have liked to avoid it this moment, God does the same in our own lives tests us, lets us face things so that our faith may be sustained and increased. James would famously write it this way, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, a faith alive and consistent. Lewis says something similar about love that I think applies to faith faith, hope, and love. Lewis wrote, to love it all is to be vulnerable. I think you could equally say that to live by faith is to make yourself vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with little hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
I think the same temptation is true with faith. Disengage from the world, protect what little things you can control, avoid anything that would be complicated or difficult or challenging. You may think that you're protecting yourself from the complexity, but in reality, you are losing your faith and inviting an altogether new kind. That story played out in Abraham. And I think what led him to understand this moment was seeing the ways apathy before had only complicated things around him. As we've done through each of these instincts, I want to offer you a kind of intentional practice to set alongside. If you find yourself recognizing this same disengagement and apathy from complexities, what is it you should intentionally be doing, the resources of faith that you're going to be applying to check that instinct? And I think the one you rightfully see from Abraham's story is the practice of sacrifice. I want to offer this intentional kind of sacrifice as a practice of rescuing you from the instinct of of apathy. Paul puts this central by calling it our lives, lives of living sacrifice. He paints an image of us each crawling onto an altar and offering our comfort and our control our possessions and our days as a sacrifice on that altar to whatever and however God should choose to use them. I want to be really clear about this instinct as I have the other ones. Disengagement is not necessarily a sin. Take a vacation. It's okay. (laughs) Retire. I hope to do it one day myself. We need times in which we recover, times in which sometimes we do step away from the complexity and difficulties But I don't think you should be naive about the risks of your life being lived in this disengagement and the way in which it can rob you of the faith needed to live and sustain in this faith of following God. Don't be naive about how easy and how naturally you disengage and protect what you can control. And don't be naive about ultimately what it can cost you. I realize this is a hard one. For those of us who like to be in control, who want comfort, who have worked really hard for a long time to have a little bit of it, I'm not saying this morning that you should lose it all. But what I am saying is if you do not recognize this temptation, it's not just that you're somehow doing wrong, but what I think you see in Abraham's story is you are risking more than you realize. What you think you can protect, what you think you can control, you can't. You need faith to be able to have the things and experience the things that God is longing to do in your life, better things. There are plenty of places in the Bible, I think it's also true of the world around us, where men do harm by aggression and violence. But by my reading and observations, there are far more, more men who damage the world around them, damage the relationships around them by their apathy and their disengagement. You are here because God wants to use you, wants you alive to what he is doing around you and participating in it by faith. The reality is that is not always easy. It certainly means that parts of your life will not be in your control, but in his. And it will certainly cost you something to live by faith, certainly comfort and control. You will face trials and tests But I don't think the alternative is actually what you think it is. Living by faith with its trials and tests, as opposed to comfort and control and peace. 
The reality is, it's those who try to control, who try to formulate their own peace and comfort that tend to do the worst damage and experience the worst loss. One of the best examples of this comes from a Jewish journalist, Hannah Arendt. There was a movie that came out in 2018, some of you may have seen, called uh, Operation Finale. It told the story of a secret Israeli operation to capture a man named Adolf Eichmann. He was a former SS officer and one of the organizers of the Final Solution, which of course during uh, the 40s, the 30s and 40s was the German government plan to capture and execute Jews. The movie is suspenseful, it's action-packed, disguises and secret plots as they infiltrate a country to try to find Eichmann who's been hiding in South America. Uh, There are moments of conflict and it's certainly a dramatic image. But as the movie unfolds, as they find themselves capturing the man and then with him, the movie rightfully paints a picture of not a kind of monster that you might imagine. The image that emerges of this man, Adolf uh, Adolf Eichmann, is one of a mere human. The movie depicts the captors having to feed him and shave him and lead him to the bathroom. He's blind without his glasses, as they soon discover. Scene by scene, Eichmann becomes more human and less the monster that you would imagine him to be. That realization that one of the century's most grotesque villains, the man who perpetrated and helped organize some of the worst atrocities in human history, the fact that he is actually also a human being, an average man, doesn't diminish his guilt, but should tell you something. His humanity isn't a defense, but it suggests something far more uncomfortable. The most horrific acts of evil can be carried out by people indiscernibly different from you and me. Far from being a monster, Eichmann was a kind of boring bureaucrat who justified horrific evil as simply carrying out orders as he would defend. It's this blind and thoughtless loyalty that I think we see as a kind of apathy. I do what I'm told, I disengage from the reality of it, And I think the movie actually makes him a little more interesting than he actually is. You know, when Hollywood casts somebody, they're always a little better looking and more interesting than the real story. The reality is you can go back and watch footage of the trial of Eichmann. He looks more like somebody you would meet at the DMV than leading a Nazi death squad. And so Hannah Arendt, this journalist in 1961, went to cover this case. She drew an unbelievable amount of controversy because she pointed out much of what the movie was trying to depict that far from being a villain, he was an average, ordinary human being. She coined the phrase, one of my favorites, the banality of evil. You can define banality as being so lacking in originality as to be obvious and boring. In other words, she said what made him evil was how boring and banal and average his life actually was. She wrote this, which is what I think I'm trying to say about apathy and the dangers of it. The sad truth, she writes, is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be or do either evil or good. Apathy is not dangerous because it risks inaction. It's dangerous because having neglected the test, having retreated from questions of faith, having disengaged anything difficult, You make yourself unable to distinguish between what is good and what is evil. 
between what God is doing and what you're trying to protect. You make yourself unable to act in the moments that matter most in life. And so the very thing you seek to protect, you end up losing and forfeiting and sacrificing. The alternative, make the sacrifice that leads to faith. Go before God and acknowledge this life is not mine to control or protect, not in retirement, not in frustration or discouragement, no matter season. This life is a living sacrifice. Whatever tests I should face, whatever trial, I'll count it as joy. Joy that you are at work in my life, perfecting this faith, making me a person steadfast in faith. So this morning, I just want to ask a simple question. What is something that you're sacrificing? What is a way in which you are engaging this world by faith where perhaps you could justify disengaging and protecting yourself? Are there ways God is testing you right now? And could those tests not be something pass or fail, but something as a gift? an opportunity to re-engage faith in ways that this world is prone to take from us. We read from Hebrews before about Abraham's faith. It says something interesting about Christ's as well. The author of Hebrews concludes after that long chapter, the witnesses of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' motivation for sacrifice was a joy set before him. What I want you to hear me say, as hard as I know this particular sermon is, our tendency to self-control, disengage, there is a greater joy than your own control, a greater joy than protecting what you have, a greater joy than somehow avoiding complexity in life. There is a joy that would lead Jesus, with all of his power, to sacrifice, to give his life, a joy set before him that would allow him, like Abraham, to pass that test by faith, engaging the reality of what God was doing. So this morning, we humble ourselves, we quiet our own hearts, and we say before God, God, I recognize this instinct in myself to avoid complexity, to avoid the relationships that are too complex, the work and the calling that I can't control, to retreat into my own comfort, my own security. But I also recognize the cost That to disengage from you in this world is to lose everything. And so counting the joy set before us, we lay our lives as a sacrifice before him. No matter the test, no matter the challenge. God, help us to have the kind of faith that engages what you are doing. Who lives by faith into all of the complexity. Trusting and believing that you work all things for good and that there is a better joy set before us for those who will run this race with endurance and steadfastness and faith alive from beginning to end. Let's close in prayer this morning and then we're going to worship together.
Heavenly Father, we live in a world that feels increasingly complex. Perhaps, God, we feel it in ways over the last few years that few of us have felt it before. There's so much controversy. There's so much anger and frustration and anxiety. God, we all know what it is to be able to just retreat, to be able to disengage and just try to live simply, to avoid it. But yet, God, we also recognize how easy it is to begin disengaging our faith from what you're doing. To protect ourselves, to seek what we want, to content ourselves with our own desires, and so miss what it is you're doing around us in the complexity of this world, in the complexity of relationships and people, neighbors and family. God, you promise that your burden is light that your yoke is easy, that to follow you is not a way of difficulty, but of peace and contentment, the very thing we think we're looking for by disengaging. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit and your gospel, you would show us again that to follow you is to pursue a greater joy. God, we don't want to live lives that drift away from faith, that disengage from faith. We want to live lives of endurance and steadfastness. We want by faith to be able to see what it is you're doing and to be participants in it. So we pray you would give us that boldness, that faith alive once again by the power of your spirit. And so we worship you this morning. We say to you that our lives are a sacrifice, knowing full well that at times it means giving up our own time, our own comfort, the simplicity of the lives we've created, the money that we've come to count and trust on, that there's nothing within this life that by your call, that by your test, we are not willing to sacrifice to keep our lives engaged with what you're doing and where you're leading and where you would have us. We mean it when we pray this morning that you are our Savior and our Lord, that we follow you, that you go before us, leading us, And so all things we set aside to live this life of faith like Abraham on his best days did so well, not knowing where we're going, not knowing what it will cost, not knowing the complexities to come, but saying, if we follow you, we believe and trust all things will be for good. So we lay them down this morning, our control, our comfort, and we pray that you would help our faith to once again engage this life of faith everything that you are doing in and around us. Rescue us from this instinct of apathy and teach us what it is to live consistently by faith and all of its complexities with you before us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.